Well, you can begin to turn to John chapter 9. Our church has been walking through the gospel of John uh, this summer and enjoying just finding out more about who Jesus is, getting a, a picture of who Jesus is. A gospel is just good news. And there's four of them in the beginning of the New Testament, four eyewitness accounts of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. So today, this story that we're going to read, a story about healing, a story about what it is to be blind or what it is to have sight, uh, a story that's got a lot of satire and humor and irony, if you ask me. Uh, a lot of uh, people's opinions flying around in the story about who Jesus is. But really, the whole story and the whole entire gospel is to focus our attention on Jesus. That's, that's the main attraction today. That's why we're here today. The name of our church, The Way, it's not because we think we're cooler than any church down the street. Like, you know, that, that's a way. This is the way. No, that's about Jesus because Jesus of himself in John's gospel says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There's only one way, and his name is Jesus, and that's where we're going to fix our attention today. So if you've got a Bible or you've got a Bible app, you can turn to John 9, and we'll be there in just a minute. A couple of uh, church business items, uh, church news stories for our church family, and anybody else that would like to join in in your bulletin, things that are happening around here. There's an insert with some information on the front and the back. One... Uh, there's a practical evangelism training workshop coming up at the end of the month on, on a Wednesday night, uh, July 31st. And that's an opportunity. Maybe you're saying, you know, I know Jesus, but I don't know how to tell other people about Jesus. Well, this would be an opportunity for you to come and get some practical training on that. And we're getting some coaching from our Asia ministry partners that are doing this on the front lines in places where they anticipate suffering for the sake of the gospel. That, that for them, when Jesus says, in this world you will have trouble, they go, yeah, duh. And I think here in America at times we're like, trouble, wait, someone looked at me sideways, someone said something not nice to me, they, they ridiculed me for sharing my faith. We need to hang out with some people that are on the front lines sharing the gospel and the tools that they've learned, bringing those back to us now to find out how can we implement some of those, that same wisdom in our efforts to share good news with people. So mark your calendars and um, RSVP for that on the 31st. Then on the back side, there's an outreach opportunity that the kids are putting on, gathering items this whole month to present some backpacks to one of our area schools here. And so you can begin to uh, collect those items that are listed and bring those in and they'll uh, August 4th is kind of the big day of, of packing those up and getting them ready to go out. So you got a few more weeks there as well. Um, other info in your bulletin, check it out. Don't miss out on, on anything that's happening. But let's go together to God's word today in, in John chapter 9. It begins with this. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, teacher, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Okay, so the, the, the beginning of the story is a story of this man's disability, infirmity, problem that he's got. And that's what's highlighted. It's not just that he became blind due to some industrial accident later in life. He was born blind. And so you're seeing some of the, the disciples' theology coming out here. Well, naturally, if he's blind, there has to have been sin. Otherwise, he wouldn't be blind. So, uh, but, but we have a little bit of a question, a theological question, Jesus. Since he was born blind, was it his parents' sin? 
Now, they actually had a category in uh, rabbinic thinking. Some of the, the first century rabbis, as they're looking at the question, can you sin even prior to birth? That seems like a ridiculous question, right? So, so they're wondering, can you actually sin in the womb? And many of them thought that you could based on the story in Genesis 25. Two babies in the womb uh, looking like there's some sinful activity happening in the womb. Genesis 25 uh, verse 21, Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren, and the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her, Jacob and Esau, right? And so it looks like maybe there was some sinning happening in the womb where these, these little tykes are, are you know, in the uterus battling and fighting about who's cooler and, and who's going to be the, the head twin, who's, maybe who's going to enter the birth canal first, I don't know. And so a lot of people would think, yeah, it is possible to sin in the womb, and, and then God would naturally strike you blind if he had done that. And so the disciples are asking this question. The, the context of all this now, this is, this is a story, it doesn't just start here in John 9. We've been seeing themes developing throughout John's gospel. We heard last week in John 8 that Jesus in verse 12 said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Well, this man that we meet in chapter 9, he has been walking in darkness his whole life. He, he's, he hasn't seen the light, literally and figuratively. And so the disciples are kind of connecting that teaching with this practical life example standing before them. They think, well, if he's walking in darkness, clearly he's not a follower. There must be sin connected with this man's blindness. The good news is that there is a light coming. There is an opening of the eyes that's coming. And Jesus is going to answer their theological question. But I think it's something to wrestle with. This is not primarily a story about sin. It's primarily a story about Jesus. But sin comes up in here. Sin is falling short of God's glorious standard. It's missing the mark of God's holiness. It's seeing the righteousness and the glory of God and saying, no, thank you, I'll go my own way. And so these disciples, the followers of Jesus, are saying, teach us, teacher, who sinned, this man or his parents? Later in the New Testament, Paul will unpack this theme about the nature of sin and the nature of God's holiness. In, in chapter 5 of Romans, it says, for if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. And what Jesus is about to tell his disciples, it's not about sin. There's something way more exciting than, than just this man's present physical condition. The fact that he can't see, that he's walking in darkness. God's about to do something big. And his whole life of, of stumbling in darkness was worth it for this moment that you're about to witness and experience. Really, the, 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 the general theological question that the disciples have, uh, there, there is some truth in the general application of this. What's the cause of suffering, generally speaking? Why does anyone suffer? Why does anyone uh, experience pain and sorrow and sickness and loss? Generally speaking, the disciples are close to the truth. It's because of sin. The direct result of sin is suffering. 
and pain. And you and I live in a world dominated by sin's effects. But they take it a step too far when they then apply that general principle to this one specific man and say, well, this dude is suffering either because of his own sin or because of his parents' sin. And that's not a a teaching that Jesus proclaims, declares. It's not something you and I should grab a hold of the next time you hit your thumb with a hammer. You shouldn't go there in your mind. Oh, this is probably because I didn't do my devotions yesterday. God's up there with his big celestial mallet just waiting to whack me like whack-a-mole, when I, when I mess up, that's not the God we serve. So, so not a direct co- connection between my individual sin and my individual suffering. Now, there are times when there are natural consequences. If you partake of the legal substance here in Colorado, you will kill some brain cells. The sin of not caring for that temple of the Holy Spirit, which is your body, will result in some residual pain and hardship and suffering in your life. So there is some element of truth here, right? And yet Jesus doesn't go there in his response. Here's what he says in verse 3. It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. The same phrase we heard in chapter 8. So what's Jesus talking about? First of all, the the end of that whole statement there um, about light and darkness and as long as I'm in the world. He's having a conversation with actual people at an actual place in time around 30 AD, the actual disciples and followers there with him. He's not, you know, metaphorically speaking to us. He's saying, guys, I'm about to die and go into the grave and there's a resurrection coming and then you'll see me ascend into heaven at the beginning of Acts. So there's a literal darkness for you coming. Right now, the light of the world is walking around with you. You're hearing his teachings. You're seeing his life example. You're seeing miracles and signs that point to the glory of God through him. That day is is not going to be here much longer. Let's do the work of God, which is to glorify God. And this is before the whole discussion that comes up later in John about the promised Holy Spirit that's to come and be poured out. He hasn't gotten there yet. That's the good news that goes along with the bad news that Jesus physically is about to leave. But the good news is that he's going to provide his Holy Spirit to continue to reveal truth to his people. And Jesus will actually still be with his people even after he dies and resurrects and ascends. But that's what he's referring to in this discussion of light and darkness and doing the works of God. But look at at really the the key voice of, of what Jesus is saying and declaring and proclaiming here is that it's not an issue of sin. It's about the glory of God. We've seen that theme in John's gospel. There is one who is glorious. There is one who is worthy of all honor. We sing a song about this. All honor, glory, and power is yours alone forever. Amen. And this is what Jesus is declaring. The blindness is about to bring glory to God. And you and I, in our finite timeline, we may say, that, that's cruel. God, you would let this guy be born blind, go through an entire lifetime just for this one day in his adult years? Not unlike a child, right, who says, 
when is that 4th of July parade where we're going to get a bag full of candy? And as a parent, you're going, it's like in two days. Relax. But, but from a child's perspective, you can't wait till that birthday comes or till Christmas morning arrives or till that good thing comes and it feels like suffering and pain because of that childlike mentality when it comes to time. And you and I, we think that this worldly existence is all there is and it barely scratches the surface of reality. So we come to our eternal loving father and he goes, oh yeah, oh, oh, you're upset because this guy went through his little finite existence up to this point and blind. Okay, I can see where you might have that naive perspective. Someday you'll see clearly from my perspective, you'll see the, the beginning and the end and you'll gain that eternal perspective as we see God face to face. But for now, it's okay to hurt and to, and to have sorrow and pain in this life when someone we love dies or when we experience pain in our physical mortal bodies and we've got a God who's patient with us and loving as a parent is with a child waiting for that Christmas morning. So this is to bring glory to God. Jesus here says we must work. He's talking about his disciples that are there in the room and he's saying, guys, listen to me. There is work to be done. There's glorifying God, making him great, exalting him, improving his reputation in the neighborhood. Letting people know how glorious he is. And so then, after having spoken these words, verse 6, he does some actions. He spat on the ground, made mud with the saliva, anointed the man's eyes with the mud, and then said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Um, I don't think Jesus is giving us a a prescription here on how you heal someone. So, uh, um, you know, don't be going out to the the softball field after church and making some mud and smearing it on that sore muscle. I don't think it's a template for how healing happens. But I think there is a lot of symbolism and uh, uh, just illustration in what Jesus is doing. There's a lot taking place here. So there's saliva um, there's a good insight in one of the commentaries I read on this, like, what is saliva all about, you know? Well, I thought this was a good insight. It talked about how in the Old Testament, any, any liquid that comes from the human body was unclean. It made you unclean. You touch blood, you're unclean. You have a flow of blood, you're unclean. Touch a dead body, you're unclean. Saliva, unclean. They spit on Jesus in Matthew's gospel during the crucifixion as a way of, of, of deriding him similar to today. So all, all, the, all the human fluids are, are in the category of unclean. And their whole mentality and their whole world was that if you touch something unclean, that uncleanness is so powerful that it's transferred onto you. So here's, here's an unclean dead body. If I touch it, now I, got, I caught the contagious uncleanness from that dead body. But here comes one who is so powerful and so holy and so clean that his holiness is more contagious than the uncleanness. Here comes the son of God stepping into human history that when the woman with the issue of blood reaches out through the crowd and touches the hem of his garment, it's not that Jesus catches her uncleanness, it's that she catches his holiness and she's made whole and made clean. 
And on the cross, when his blood is shed, it's his very blood that cleanses the sins and the guilt of the entire world. And here is God himself stepping into human history. His saliva opens the eyes of the blind. There's also symbolism in the mud, okay? The, the prologue to John's gospel in John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made, and apart from him nothing was made that has been made. Now, a careful reader of God's Word will, will be hearing echoes of John 1 in that, or I'm sorry, echoes of Genesis 1 in John 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens of the, and the earth. How did God create Adam in, in Genesis chapter 2? He took dust and formed it and shaped it and breathed into it and made him a living being. Here's Jesus down in the dust, mixing in some saliva, and there's a new work of creation about to occur as this man who's never seen before is about to be given sight it's a picture of the, the, the deity of Jesus, the, the divinity, the, the creator God is here among us. He's not in the category of creation like you and I are, like everything that we touch is. This is creator standing before you. There's one who is glorious and to be worshipped. Pay attention. Today, that same Jesus is here. And he's ready to touch you and to do a new work of creation in your heart. If you've got some dysfunction in there, some, something you've carried since birth that's broken, it's called sin. And there's one who comes today to do that new work of creation. Let him touch you today. Don't be foolish and resist him working within your heart. He's, he's the only one who's able to fix and to save and to repair and restore and so this man submits to that, to that message. There is some action on his part. You know, it's not that the, the, the walk to the pool of Siloam is what healed him. It's not that the magical mud of Palestine is what healed this guy. It was Jesus who healed him. And yet this man submitted himself to what Jesus required of him, asked of him. And there was, there was a journey for him to the pool of Siloam. That's when the healing occurred. It wasn't in the obedience that the healing happened, but that was a, a part of the way in which Jesus healed him. And so he's healed. And it's almost, it's almost a small part of the story. So he went and watched and came back seeing. Now we get into the whole, all of the reactions. First, the reactions of the neighbors, and then we'll get into the reactions of the church people. So the neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, it is he. Others said, no, but it looks like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, then how were your eyes opened? He answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I don't know. <laughs> In fact, we're going to find out later. Frankly, this man has never seen Jesus. 
he, he wouldn't be able to pick him out of a crowd. You know, the last time, you know, he got some, some dude was putting mud in his eyes and giving him instructions, and he's feeling his way to the pool of Siloam. And so when his eyes are open, Jesus is not there. He doesn't know what he looks like. He just gives a flat retelling of the exact events that have taken place. And there's a mixed response. Can you remember back to the time when Jesus first touched you? How did the people in your life respond? Was it a mixed bag? Maybe some of your old friends were like, where were you at the party on Friday night? Or, what's wrong with you? How come you're acting so weird? Or, oh, you're a Jesus freak now. I'm going to wait till you trip up and then point it out, hypocrite. Or, maybe on the positive side, like some of these neighbors, what happened to you? Where's all this joy coming from? Where's all this hope? Where's the old you that I don't miss anymore? And, and that's the mixed response we're hearing here from these neighbors. I hope that you can, if you've been a believer for a long time, remember that first love, that joy of your salvation and some of the tension that it created among your family members. And maybe there's some of that that you need to go back to and pray, God, restore that joy of my salvation to me so that when people look at me, they're still asking those questions. Like, what is it that's different about you? And maybe if you're today considering Jesus and he's coming to you and he's saying, I've made the mud, The healing is available for your sin issue. Are you ready to go to the pool that means sent and be touched and cleansed in a new way? I hope that this gives you some excitement and some courage to see that it's a radical transformation that will bring the attention of your friends and neighbors when you go down this path. Maybe maybe some of us need that practical evangelism nudge to say, start being the hands and feet of, of Jesus at your workplace, at your school, in your neighborhood, there's more stories like this that need to be spread and shared, more conversations and discussions that need to occur as lives are touched by Jesus. So, so really, the, the, the neighbors, um, you know, there's some buzz, there's some excitement, even though there's confusion and questioning, is this actually the same guy? It can't be. It looks like him, but I just can't. My brain cannot wrap around this idea that this is the guy that's been begging his entire life. How can that be? So there's genuine interest and intrigue. And so they, you know, not out of malicious intent, but they want to involve their local synagogue pastors to help them make sense of this. How can this have happened? So they're not dragging this this man who was blind off to the religious leaders with, with any ill intent. They're just saying... We, got, we need, help us. What, how did this happen? What's going on here? So verse 13, they brought to the Pharisees the man, who had former, the man who had formerly been blind. I love that it reminds me of the artist formerly known as Prince. You know? This is his new name. You know, put that on your hello, I am the man who was formerly blind. And maybe it's okay to carry some of that label with us. This is who I was before I met Jesus. Let me tell you who I am today now that he's touched me. And now we find out another detail we haven't heard yet in the story. It was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. Those are both verbs. Not supposed to do any verbs on a Sabbath day. Making mud, oh, that sounds like works. Work. 
Uh, opening eyes, healing, mm-mm. You violated one of the, the Old Testament covenant laws there. And, and we already saw this happen in chapter 5, right? The man who was paralyzed, Jesus healed him on the Sabbath day. It led to this whole fight with the Pharisees. And it's like these guys who should have an understanding of the glory of God and his works and what it's all about, life-changing power, they're fixating on this little detail and missing the big picture that God is at work. There's a new work of creation. And so, you know, the Pharisees now, they, they, oh, wait a minute, he healed somebody on the Sabbath? Ooh, we got a problem there. Verse 15, the Pharisees again asked him, going back to the man who had been blind, how did you receive your sight? So he said to them, same story, he put mud on my eyes, I washed and I see. So now the Pharisees are of two opinions. Some of them said, this man is not from God for he does not keep the Sabbath. Argument A. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? Argument B. And there was division among them. And so again, third time now, they go to the blind man and say, well, well, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? And so now the, the formerly blind beggar becomes the theologian in the story. And he says, he's a prophet so he's more of, of opinion B, that God's not going to do a work through someone who is sinful. Well, which of those arguments do you find more compelling in light of your knowledge of the Old Testament? Actually, I think, I think opinion A is a better argument, right? That God, um, God's not going to work through someone who violates God's commands. So if God says, honor the Sabbath to keep it holy, and then somebody comes along and goes, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to do my own thing and expect God to bless it. To me, that seems like a solid argument. That I, I would kind of be on that side with those Pharisees going, yeah, I'm skeptical of this guy. What about uh, opinion B? God doesn't do miracles through sinners. Well, th- there is a problematic story back in the book of Exodus where one day Moses and Aaron appear before Pharaoh and Moses goes, you will know that God is working as I throw down my staff and it turns into a serpent. And then Pharaoh goes, oh, that's no big deal. Hey, uh, sorcerers, magicians, come on in and throw your staffs down. And they turn into serpents as well. There, sometimes there are miraculous looking things that the deceiver that we found out about in chapter 8, the father that... Jesus pointed the fingers of the devil, the liar who's been lying since the beginning. He also can do things that look miraculous. So, so there, there's, that would kind of negate that argument B. They're, they're debating this. They're, they're discussing this. How can God work in a way that seems to us to be opposed to God's ways? And yet, how can something miraculous happen apart from God at work? Good, valid questions. You can see the turmoil that's building there. And they're going to the, the man who had been blind. Can you sort this out for us? And he gives his opinion. Well, it continues to escalate. Verse 18, the Jews did not believe that he had been blind. So now we're, we're doubting that a miracle has actually taken place. That's now a third option to resolve this. So they doubted that he'd been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, Is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, 
carefully, cautiously. Um, we know that he's our son, and we know that he was born blind, but how he now sees we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He's of age. He will speak for himself. And a little parenthetical context here. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, Messiah, the anointed one, king, that's what that word means. It's not Jesus' last name. If anyone should say Jesus is the king, that person was to be put out of the synagogue. And they're going, I don't want to get kicked out of church. I'm standing here talking to my pastor and I'm walking right into a trap because if I say the wrong thing, I'm going to get kicked out of church. Let me just deflect attention back to my son again and and keep the, the eyes off of me. So that's why his parents said he's of age, ask him. So, so it says here, for the second time they called the man. I mean, this guy keeps, this is like the fourth time, really, that this man who had been blind has asked the same question. And he's getting some more confidence, some more boldness, and he's going, you know what? I don't care if I'm put out of the synagogue. I'm going to point to Jesus as the king. I don't care what people's opinions of me are. I'm going to declare that there is one who is glorious and he was here today and changed my life forever. I don't care if I'm persecuted. I don't care what the consequences are. There's some building boldness in my heart and I'm going to proclaim truth to those that need to hear. This is a guy who was not theologically trained. He had no status and position. He was a beggar up until this moment. And they call him in again and he's got an opportunity to testify of who Jesus is and what he's done in his life. The man who had been blind said to him, and they they said to him, the Pharisees said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. More irony in those two statements, right? Give glory to God. That's what this whole chapter is about. And yet they're using it kind of like, you know, swear on the Holy Bible. And then they, they, they make this proclamation. We know that Jesus is a sinner. And he answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. Now, this guy is about to get some more theological knowledge of who Jesus is. He's about to, uh, you know, take a a Sistheo 1 class in just a moment as he meets Jesus at the end of our story. But at this point in his story, all he's got is is a testimony of how God has worked in his own life. I'll tell you, that is a fine place to begin. You know, when we go through this practical evangelism training in a couple weeks, Your story of how Jesus touched your life is a part of your presentation of the gospel. You're not a robot, a machine, a a, a bunch of ones and zeros. You're a person with a story made in the image of God, male and female, and he loves you enough to know who you are, what your sin issue is, what your place of healing need is, and to touch you, to heal you, to cleanse you. Share that story. Tell the good news. And the good news is you will learn and and discover more of who he is so that you can articulate that truth more efficiently, effectively, 
as you, as you grow in your faith, right? So don't just stay there in that personal story, but don't be afraid to share it as this man did. And so then they said to him, well, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And now he's getting a little snarky. He answered them, I've told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, you are his disciple, but we are the disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. And the man answered, why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began, notice that creation, clear message now, never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And they answered him, you were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. I mean, the irony in this story, they're, they're saying, hey, uh, we're trying to sort this out. Can you help clarify? What's your perspective? Well, let me share my perspective with you. This is what I, you idiot, shut up. They don't want to hear it. What a day for this guy, huh? <laughs> you know, you start out the day like every day. I'm just doing my beggar thing, hoping I can get some provision for the bread I need to make it through the day. And all of a sudden, there's Jesus is there, and there's mud and a pool, and you're seeing for the first time, and now all this antagonism from the Pharisees and questions from your neighbors and your parents disavowing any connection to you. And it ends with this of him now being put out of the synagogue, kicked out of his church. But that's not the end of the story. Because Jesus goes and finds him. In verse 35, Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? That's, that's one phrase that's used to describe Jesus. Not often in John's Gospel. But that basically means, do you believe that this is God's ambassador to mankind? Or do you believe in God's, the one that God has sent to the human race? And he answered, who is he, sir? that I may believe in him. He doesn't know who he's looking at. He's never seen him before. And then Jesus said, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. And at, at the recognition of Jesus, listen to what he says. Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. You look at the progression there where it began with an encounter with Jesus which produced some faith and some belief in this man. I, I don't know if he's a sinner or not, but I do know that I can see. And there was some faith produced. And that led to some understanding of who Jesus is because Jesus doesn't just leave it there with that one-time touch. 
But he comes and he reveals himself to us and he says, get into my word and discover who I am, how my heart beats. Reorient your view on reality. It needs some healing. And we go to him and he opens our eyes and as he increases our understanding, that faith builds and it grows some more. Not so that we can then brag to one another about how much we know about Jesus now, but so that it will result in worship. Falling down before him and saying, you are glorious. I believe that declaration, that proclamation. I believe. And worshiping him as the creator and the healer and the restorer that he is. And finally, this story ends with a, with a discussion of what it means to be blind or to see. And Jesus says in verse 39, For judgment... I came into this world that those who do not see may see and those who see may become blind. Uh, The word judgment in the Bible, I think of it like this. Take a coin and on one side it says judgment and on the flip side it says salvation. It's two sides of the same coin. And it, it makes sense in our legal system as well. If you've been accused of a crime you didn't commit, and you know that you've got an awesome defense attorney, you've got a good alibi, you were nowhere around where this crime was committed, you're really looking forward to Judgment Day. Because on Judgment Day, all the the information is gonna be presented to the judge, and finally, all this pressure and confusion and wondering, did did she murder him? It's gonna all be put aside, and you're gonna be declared not guilty. And so Judgment Day is Salvation Day for you. Now, if on the other hand, you've been claiming I didn't do it. And, and the prosecution is saying, you were caught literally red-handed with the murder weapon and the motive standing over the corpse. You're not looking forward to Judgment Day because it will be the day when the judge renders you guilty and then you begin to face the consequences of those actions. Judgment and salvation, two sides of the, of the same coin. The day when God sorts it all out and those who are claiming to be innocent are revealed to be guilty. And those who are saying, little, little twist here, I am guilty, but Jesus paid the price. And the judge looks at you and says, on the basis of his shed blood, you are declared righteous. You are declared not guilty because of the finished work of Jesus on the cross. And some of the Pharisees hear this discussion of, of, of blindness and seeing, and they know what he's talking about. And they say to Jesus, are we also blind? Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. There is a part of the good news that can be distorted in our world today, even in our music It's a great idea. It fits, it jives really well with American culture to tell people, you're a masterpiece. You're a diamond. You're you're just unfinished. You're a treasure. But that's a distortion of the good news that begins, you are wretched, but through Jesus, you're saved. You are lost, but through Jesus, you're found. You are blind, but because of Jesus, you see. 
The good news always starts with a recognition of that bad news. Our sin nature, our place of brokenness that needs the touch of Jesus. And when you get it that way, both parts, the, the bad news and the good news, you're not sitting here you know, with the, the scourge whipping your back, crawling on bloodied knees, trying to you know, make up for all these bad things that you've done. No, not at all. Instead, you come to Jesus and your eyes are opened and you worship and you declare amazing grace, how sweet the sound. And today... I don't know where you are in the story. Maybe there's some of the, the Pharisee heart that, that as you consider your own heart, you're going, I'm like that at times. Where I'm pretty confident in my own spiritual achievements up to this place. I'm pretty skeptical of any work of God in another person's heart. And you come to the story going, man, Lord, help me to see once again how blind I am until you open my eyes. Maybe today it, it, you, you identify with the man who was blind and now sees, and you're going, man, I'm just starting out this experience with Jesus, this life-changing transformation power. And it's exciting, and I've got a lot to grow and learn. Take heart. Worship him. Be bold. Testify of who he is. And then when he finds you and encounters you and tells you the truth, get into his words some more and dig in and increase your knowledge of who he is because your faith will grow and those doors of opportunity will open to you. Maybe today you're the beggar blind sitting there like you have every day for your whole life. And Jesus is coming today saying, this is the day. It's going to be radical. It's going to be a wild ride. But you're sitting in this elementary school gym for a reason because I'm tapping you on the shoulder and I'm reaching out to you. Today's the day to surrender to him. At the end of the service, we're going to have opportunity for prayer. And you can come right on up here. Whatever category you're in, uh, we've got people that would love to pray with you. But before we do that, we're going to share some, some church news. And we'll get to that, that prayer time in just a moment. Um, but we, we've got, I, I want to invite our youth pastor, Joey Metzler, to come up with me at this time. Uh, Joey shared some news that's uh, both exciting and sad uh, for us, those mixed emotions uh, at the young adult uh, group on Tuesday night and also at the youth, youth service on Thursday. But we want to let him go ahead and share that with you as well today. Check, check. Okay, we're good. What's up, everybody? It's good. It is good to see you guys. Um, as many of you know already, um, I just want to bring everybody kind of up to speed. So um, two weeks from today will be my last day at the Way Church. Uh, my wife and I have accepted a position, and it's not just any ordinary position. It's not as simple as one church versus another, but it's our home church. It's the church that I accepted Jesus in. It's the church that I received my call to ministry in, it's, um, and they approached me and um, offered me to serve with them, and we chose to accept, and it's bittersweet for us, right? It's um, excited about the next chapter, but it's sad because of the great relationships that we've built here. And um, yeah, the lesson that I'm hoping that we can all learn in this is that it is not about the way church. It's not about Eastern Hills or High Point or this church that I'm going to or any churches in Denver. It is about building God's kingdom. And we will still be doing that. At the very least, we'll be spending eternity together. And at very most, gosh, we live in the same city. <laughs> we, 
we did real relationship. Um, I know that this announcement comes to many of you, um, could come as a surprise, and if you're hurting or, um, that comes with love. And that, that, that hurt is because we did it right. And I gotta end with this. I am so excited, not just what God's gonna do in our next step, but what God's gonna continue to do in the way church um, after we're gone, and what I'm most excited about is continued relationship past this, right? That this does not have to be the end, that I still know you guys, I still have relationships with you guys, and I'll be popping in from time to time and um, hopefully partnering together in the future. So, um, man, we are really going to miss you guys. So, why don't we close in prayer? Let's stand together, and uh, we're gonna, we are going to have a send-off prayer for you guys in a couple weeks, but I'm just going to wrap it all up today. I'll, I'll leave then. Uh, <laughs> okay. God, we just thank you for this day of gathering together. People from many tongues, tribes, and nations gather together in this place as a picture of what it's going to look like someday as we gather with all the saints and with the angels before the throne declaring, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And as our story today drew our attention to your glory, your supremacy, your creative transforming work in in hearts and lives that leaves us changed forever, we once again fix our eyes on you. We thank you for the touch of Jesus that changes us and heals us. We thank you for the touch that Joey and Gabriella have had in this body, bringing healing, bringing, uh, bringing a shared vision for, for your work, bringing health and blessing. We thank you for a young adult group that was launched because of their ministry here. Thank you for good foundations that have been laid. We thank you for the consistency of a bunch of youth leaders that were here prior to the Metzler's arrival and will be here after they leave. God, for that stability within our group of students and the reminder to them that you see them, you see their needs, you see their hurt, and you are with them walking before them, that it's, it's you, Jesus, that we worship and obey. And we pray, for the, we pray for Colorado Community Church that as Joey and Gabriella go there, you would make them a blessing. You'd expand God's kingdom in North Aurora through their ministry, that you would bring a team around them that would partner with them and work together with them, give them creative ways to reach young people and families in those communities where you are not yet known and where your name needs to be proclaimed. And we pray for Malaika and Samid that you'd bless them tomorrow on their day as, as we all celebrate together with them the picture of the gospel that you desire to bring about in their marriage. We ask these things now in Jesus' name. Amen.